Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks with Jane Araf about the Iraq of today. Then, John, Will, and I talk about corruption in Iraq and beyond. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jane Araf is the New York Times bureau chief in Baghdad. She has spent more than a quarter century as a journalist in the Middle East working for National Public Radio, CNN, the Christian Science Monitor, and other leading outlets. She was based in Baghdad under Saddam Hussein and has been going back in the years since his fall. Jane, welcome to Babel. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. So what's the mood in Iraq these days? We Iraq has in many ways fallen from the consciousness of a lot of people in the United States. What is the mood? I'm sort of in denial that Iraq has fallen from the consciousness of people in the United States because it's still endlessly fascinating. And I think the mood really, like most of the eras of Iraq that I've covered, it really depends on who you're talking to. But a lot of the mood now, it's kind of moved beyond the political class. You know, all the things that we think of as important, the formation of a government, what happens to the oil, relations with the neighbors. A lot of Iraqis don't care about any of that stuff. So you go to Baghdad, for instance, and there are all these new restaurants and there are shopping malls. And not that those are like the mark of progress or anything, but there is really a life beyond the politics in Iraq, particularly in Baghdad. So it's a country of young people now, and the mood is really kind of alternates between young people desperate to leave and other Iraqis who are hanging in there and persisting and trying to make things work. Where's the money coming from to build all these restaurants and malls and other kinds of things? Oh, that's a great question. I guess the short answer, John, is part of it comes from money laundering, clearly, because we're talking about restaurants that cost a couple of million dollars to build and then lots of money to run and protection money. But Otherwise, civil servants, for instance, and most of the employees, most of the working people in Baghdad, for instance, are civil servants. They have some disposable income, and Iraqis love going out. But if you look at places which we haven't thought about in a long time, like Fallujah, for instance, or Ramadi, Western Anbar, which is known primarily for all the fighting that went on with the Marines in 2003. There's huge amounts of investment there. And a lot of that investment is coming from oil money being channeled into government projects that range from luxury hotels to new roads. So it's a variety of sources, but certainly we can't discount the distinct possibility that some of it clearly is laundering money. You said that it's now a country of young people and young Iraqis grew up in their early childhood under dictatorship. They dealt with a decade of war and uncertainty. You said a lot want to leave, but what are young Iraqis like? How plugged in are they to the world? How much are they like and unlike young Arabs from neighboring states? Because I know you have a lot of experience in the entire region. They are similar in many ways. This is a generation in Iraq, certainly, that grew up 
with the memory of conflict, if not necessarily actually living through the conflict itself, i.e. they were young children during the wars. But it's also a generation that grew up with internet, unlike their parents, for instance, and they have expectations. They, they look around at the rest of the world. They want things. They want opportunities. They don't understand why they can't have them. One of the questions I've always asked Iraqis, and it's a very simple question, and I keep asking it even though the answer is fairly obvious, and in many ways it's a silly question. There's so much inequality and so much unfairness and so much injustice in Iraq. And, you know, I ask, why don't Iraqis get more angry? And the answer I was always given was they couldn't afford to get angry. So now it's a new generation that has indeed gotten angry. And we've seen that in the protests where young people went out and risked death and hundreds of them died. And they are, in many ways, a generation that has high expectations. And in many ways, they are also angry. And I think that's actually a healthy thing. Was there a time you saw something that was surprisingly normal? I am surprised every day by Iraq. I suppose because part of it is it's a complex country. And it's because I learn things every day. So surprisingly normal. I would have to say the restaurants and surprisingly normal isn't 100% great because it's surprisingly normal during a pandemic, which no one pays attention to in Iraq. So the restaurants are absolutely full of people. You know, Iraqis like to go out. They like to socialize. You have all these lovely rooftop restaurants now. You have patios. You have families in restaurants by the riverside. At dusk along the river, you have kids playing football. So Baghdad itself feels very normal. If normal is, you can go out and do what you would normally do without being worried too much about being blown up. Having said that, underneath the surface, there are really worrying currents. The fact that so many kids have dropped out of school during the pandemic, the fact that it could actually be a, a lost generation of millions of kids who don't even learn how to read or write. The looming crisis when the oil money runs out. But on the surface, if you go through the streets, it does look surprisingly just like a normal big Arab city. And that reminds me of the way Kuwaitis used to talk about Basra in the 1970s. Hmm. Basra was where they would go to have fun, right? Yes. They would go to drink and dance and do all those things. Yeah. Poor Basra. I say poor Basra because it is such a potentially vibrant city with such an amazing culture and such a history of poetry and everything else. And it is just so incredibly poor. And in the summer, particularly, it is like a version of hell power cuts for hours at a time, no clean water, schools that barely function. Basra is one of the big tragedies of Iraq. Iraq has a deep cultural history. What's happened to that? So one of the really cool things in Iraq is there's kind of a revival of art and music, and it's never gone away because in the Arab world, Iraq has stood as a center of artistic and other creative talent. 
And it's really the only city I can think of in the Arab world where you have extraordinarily figurative public art. So now, because the security situation is a bit better, you have art galleries opening up, art exhibits. A few months ago, they held the Babylon Festival for the first time in years, which is actually on the site of Babylon. And it was music and dance. And there were some very senior religious figures who said, this is haram, it's forbidden under religious law, you shouldn't have this, there were threats. And it went on anyway. And that has always been the wonderful thing about Iraq, that at its best, it encompasses all of these different forces. And in the best of times, all of these forces managed to coexist, both the religion and the secular expression and the creativity and the music. And more than that, what it's really hasn't fulfilled yet, but that incredible potential to harness all of those forces and be something much better than it is now. Where does sectarianism stand in Iraq right now? Sectarianism was the driving factor behind almost everything in Iraq for way too many years after the war, after Saddam was toppled. It's receded. Sectarianism now isn't as much of a factor. Part of it is because it is very clearly a Shia Muslim-dominated country, and that is pretty well accepted as a fact. But also, it's not so much a factor in everyday life. You know, sectarianism was the driving factor when it was literally a matter of life or death, whether you were Shia or Sunni, when there was Al-Qaeda in the streets and when there were Shia militias fighting them and people were caught in between That's not so much the case now, which doesn't mean that it's not important because it's deeply important in politics, but it's not as important in everyday life. And certainly when you ask Iraqis about it, most Iraqis, ordinary Iraqis, if you want to use that term, will say we're Iraqi first. And there is really a strong Iraqi identity that persists, no matter what religion or ethnic group they're from. Iraqis went through a searing set of experiences, as I said, both with Saddam Hussein and then this war. You saw a lot of those wounds being inflicted as a reporter. What scars are you surprised have healed? And what scars are you surprised have proven surprisingly durable? That's such a great question. The scars that have healed, at least superficially, which I'm surprised at, is that you can go through a period in time where people were being kidnapped from the streets. They were literally having holes drilled in their heads. They were killed because they were Sunni or because they were Shia. To a country where that doesn't happen anymore, and that seems like a really obvious thing to say, but it still kind of stuns me how you get from there to here. And that doesn't mean that the scars have healed completely. There's so many dead and so many missing, so many families who will never know what happened to their loved ones. But it's a country that just somehow it manages to stumble along without collapsing. The scars that haven't healed Those scars are not so much related to 2003 and the toppling of Saddam Hussein, which was, after all, almost a generation ago now. 
they are mostly related to ISIS and the way that ISIS irreversibly changed communities. It took over a third of Iraq and there are hundreds of thousands of people displaced, many of them still displaced who can't go back because their tribes won't let them go back. The legacy of ISIS still persists and those scars are very, very deep. You said that most Iraqis have moved beyond politics, but of course, every society needs some kind of politics. And Iraq is arguably in the midst of some sort of transition. Muqtada Sadr seemed poised to be a kingmaker after October. There's been tremendous difficulty moving on and getting election results that lead in a stable government. Where do you think that stands? Where do you think Muqtada Sadr's movement stands in trying to assert the leadership of a populist Shia sectarian party? Well, you know, the thing about Muqtada Sadr, you'll remember him in his various incarnations. He first came to light, really, in the U.S. as someone who had a militia fighting U.S. forces in the street. He had teenagers out with rifles shooting at tanks. That was the biggest threat to U.S. forces since the invasion. And then he renounced violence and he turned his militias into what he called cultural organizations, although they weren't really. And then he decided to reach out to Sunnis and reach out to Christians. And now what he's got is an organization, a movement that's very different from where he started. It is one that encompasses diversity. It encompasses different sects. It appeals to different sects. It is, of course, very Shia-based because of the legacy of his family, which was revered. But it's been an interesting transformation. The question I think people have is, for all the talk he has of ending corruption and having technocrats as ministers, is he actually serious about that? It's, as you mentioned, a very long process. The elections were last October. There's still no government formed. And now he's teaming up with the most dominant Kurdish party to try to see if they can form a government. But there are all sorts of complications in the way. If you look at it sort of clinically, it is a fascinating experiment, obviously one with huge and potentially dramatic consequences for Iraqis. But it's still very much up in the air what sort of government he'll oversee. But it's your sense that ultimately he will be in a central position when the dust settles. He absolutely will. His block has the single biggest number of seats in parliament. And what we saw from the elections when there was an extremely low turnout of voters and when the big Iran-backed parties didn't do nearly as well as they thought they would. The reason that his organization did well was not just because of the large support that he has. It's because he and his advisors figured out how to make the most of a new electoral system. And you could see it when you went out in the polls. You could see it when you talked to voters. They had figured out where to field candidates to get the maximum number of votes. They had drawn up maps. It was something that seems fairly obvious, but not a lot of other political organizations did. And that's sort of an indication that he is a political strategist, and that is expected to serve him well. That's sort of the present. And I want to ask you about the future. The world is going to go through a global energy transition sometime over the next 
three decades, oil is going to be much less of a strategic commodity in the future than it is now. A lot of Iraq's current boom is a consequence of oil money. A lot of the economic security in Iraq is a consequence of oil money to the extent there is economic security. Have Iraqis begun to think about what an energy transition will look like in the world and what impacts an energy transition will have on Iraq? You know, there are some who have begun to think that way. The current president, for instance, the current finance minister, but they are definitely in the minority. And it is very much a kind of political atmosphere and economic atmosphere where you kind of grab whatever you can get. It is a huge public service sector, something like 90% of oil revenues go to pay salaries and pensions. And there is going to be a huge economic reckoning when the oil money runs out. They're not doing a lot about it because I think as in many countries in similar situations, there isn't a lot of long-term thinking. It's essentially, how can we make things work now? And more importantly, how can we stay in power? And I think we can't really mention the economy without mentioning the death spiral that is the endemic corruption in the country. I mean, staggering, staggering corruption. And although various governments have said that they are going to try to tackle it, they never really make much of a dent. And is this corruption in terms of government spending of oil revenues, or is there some other source of money that's fueling corruption? It's corruption in almost every aspect of Iraqi society. It starts from the smallest of transactions where if you're an Iraqi and you go to try to get documents or some routine bureaucratic errand that you're trying to run, you end up having to pay somebody for things you're entitled to all the way to the directors general of ministries controlling contracts and funneling them to their friends or demanding kickbacks, to things that aren't quite as common now, but certainly in the past have resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes, which is corrupt arms deals and major, major deals that involve bribery. It's all the way across the board. It has become a way of life. And the thing about that is if you're not corrupt, it's very hard to get along in that system. And so that cuts against what you were talking about at the beginning with the boom in restaurants and investment and other things, that it undermines outsiders' willingness to play in Iraq because of a sense that this is an insider's game and it's a corrupt game. It does, absolutely. There is... Increasing amounts of regional investment, but if you look at foreign investment, it is a very tough place to do business because of the climate of corruption that surrounds it. One place that also dealt with a lot of corruption is Afghanistan, and and the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. I can't imagine a lot of Iraqis didn't think that that could have implications for them. How did people talk about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and what it meant for the future of Iraq? Well, that's a really interesting thing because we're, in a sense, I think, obsessed with U.S. troops and troop levels in Iraq. And there is a category of Iraqis that are also equally obsessed, and they have demanded that the U.S. draw down troops to the point where there are now about 2,000 of them. And they declared at the end of last year that there were no longer any combat troops. But what it means is that there is a certain essentially minimal level of troops there that are 
according to Iraqi military officials, still needed for training, advising, support, intelligence, air support. And as for ordinary Iraqis, I mean, the ones who take a political view of this, they would probably tell you they don't want any American troops there. But for the most part, it's not really a factor anymore. You know, it has been years since Iraqis have seen an American soldier anywhere. They stay on their bases. They support their Iraqi counterparts. You don't see them out and around. It's just not that kind of climate anymore. Just remarkable changes. Jane Araf, thank you for joining us on Babel. Next up, John, Will, and I talk about corruption, both in Iraq and beyond. Americans love talking about corruption in the Middle East. To hear Jane Araf's telling, corruption is endemic in Iraq today and an ever-present part of life. Why is corruption so prolific in Iraq? Is there something about corruption in Iraq and the broader Middle East that is set apart from public corruption worldwide? I think some of it has to do with having a government that has such a large role in the economy. So the government's in more of a dispersing mode. Of course, if you're dispersing, that means that there are huge advantages to having access to money, access to power, to have access to money. So I think that contributes to it. And part of it, I think, is the, the legacy of war. I mean, war creates corruption. Iraq is still in a post-war environment. There are people who made fortunes through the war, and some of those people are currently in power. I would add that you say Americans like talking about corruption in Iraq. I think some of the blame does have to be placed on the coalition, the way that they set up the system in Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein. I think has created a huge amount of opportunities for corruption. The way in which the ethno-sectarian system allows for competition for positions in governments that then people, political parties, seek to reward their constituents and members of their parties. I think a lot of this has been embedded in the system. But I agree with John that I think part of it is perhaps about a lack of, of security and this feeling, which I think Jane talked about, that corruption is just so pervasive from the most tiny daily tasks to the huge government contracts and the way in which they're awarded. I had a small experience of this when I was traveling from Iraq into Turkey, and I was trying to find a taxi that would take us across. And the only way that we would convince a driver to take us was if we essentially agreed to take cigarettes for him. And he then proceeded to take out all of the panels from the car. Um, all of the airbags had been taken out. And in every single space imaginable, in the footwells, in the trunk, in, in the airbags, he stuffed cigarettes and then paid a guard who then didn't inspect the car as we drove across. And this was the only way. If not, I, I don't think people would have taken us. So it's just a, a really small example, but I think a way in which to get anything done, there's probably a degree of corruption involved. And it's extremely difficult to get out of that cycle once it started. I still remember crossing into Lebanon from Syria and at the, the border crossing, there were large photocopied signs to remind people that bribery was illegal. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned, though, this kind of pervasiveness of corruption at every level. Jane talked about the new generation of Iraqis getting angry. 
but the protests that she talked about coming from that, she alluded to expectations of economic opportunities. It wasn't about this corruption issue at every level. So I wonder if the implication is that this kind of daily corruption isn't a hot button issue in the same way, or at least it's tolerated or viewed as unchangeable. Why would you think that that is? I suppose I'm not sure that I would separate those two things. I think younger Iraqis being upset about the economic situation, the lack of government services, I think that is hugely related to corruption. Why the Iraqi state is so unable to provide these services is due to a lot of reasons, but a big one chiefly among them, I think, is corruption and just how much money has been misappropriated from public funds. And I also think the protests, at least looking at 2019, I think they were challenging the post-2003 political settlement in Iraq. The system that I mentioned before, I think is, if not predicated on corruption, has allowed for immense amounts of corruption to take place in Iraq. And so I think people are challenging that. And I think corruption is a big part of of what people are angry about. And then she talked about how disengaged people are from politics. And that's partly because of a sense that politicians are stealing all the money putting it in their own pockets instead of helping people. And and people, rather than feeling they can change it, disengage. I think the other piece that is probably an undercurrent to a lot of this is Iraqis' sense that they should be a wealthy country. Were it not for Saddam Hussein, were it not for the war, were it not for this kleptocratic class that is taking the wealth out of the country and putting it into their own pockets, they could be like the wealthy Gulf states. And instead, they're struggling, they're poor. I think that creates a lot of disillusionment, a lot of sense of hopelessness. And I suspect that if you were to talk to some of these young people who really want to leave, it's a sense that Iraq's history has devoured its future and that Iraq should be a comfortable place. And instead, it's not. So if we take that corruption has become a part of life at every level, and it's a symptom of the broader issue, if everyone needs to play the corruption game, as Jane Araf suggested, how can Iraq ever escape that cycle? Does the change need to come from the top down? You can't just do it from the top. You can't just do it from the bottom. I think you have to have an effort at both. I mean, certainly Italy has done a lot with corruption. They pushed the mafia out of Sicily to a large degree. It takes a long time. It is hard. It takes political leadership and it takes a public that's insisting on political leadership. I don't think countries are condemned to corruption, but it can be very hard to root out as we've seen from Lebanon, which has had growing corruption for more than two decades. I wonder as well if it may be when oil prices are higher, that the chances to try and tackle corruption actually are also better. And the reason I say that, I think when oil prices go down and government budgets get squeezed, I think there's probably even more pressure on certain political actors to try and squeeze every bit they possibly can out of a system. And it's more existential for them, given how much of of the system operates on misappropriated funds. But perhaps if government revenues go up, 
then maybe then there are some more opportunities to try and put systems in place to try and tackle some of this when these actors aren't viewing it as such an existential threat. Who knows, maybe now with oil prices going up, there's slightly more opportunity there, but it's completely systemic. And, and so I think, as John says, it needs to be so many different efforts at so many different levels. One example that I had actually when when I was in Saudi Arabia was talking to a Saudi customs official who was talking about how some new systems and sort of technology can make it harder for there to be corruption. And the example he gave was that customs officials would come up to him and say, oh, we really want to be moved to different posts that are less remote, closer to our families. And sort of like, what's there? He was saying, they were saying, please, can you sort me out? And then they digitalized the process. It was a very clear process. And there was a queue. And when you got to the top of the queue, then you could change locations. And he said that that system really allowed him to then not have to grant favors for some people, not for others, because it was much clearer. So a bit of me wonders if there were opportunities to put some of these systems in place, it may be harder. But again, it's, I mean, it's such a huge part of life, I think, in Iraq that just one effort certainly isn't going to solve everything. And let's also remember how corruption plays out. It's not that everything goes into a, a Swiss bank account. A lot of the money gets funneled back into the communities, gets funneled back into supposedly philanthropic activities, the same way drug smugglers in Latin America support communities and build public support because they are the ones, as corrupt American politicians in the early 20th century did, had a chicken in every pot. There's a sense that some of it comes back and there is some resistance to overthrowing the entire system because even though the system's not efficient, the system certainly gives benefits to large parts of the community that are vulnerable and feels they need something. So, so one of the really hard things is how do you work a transition from a more corrupt system to a less corrupt system? How do you build the sorts of safety nets in? Because one of the ways that corrupt individuals sustain their corruption is they also provide safety nets to vulnerable populations that end up supporting these individuals because they need the safety net. And I think along those lines, an, an interesting idea to explore is how to transition from a system of dysfunctional corruption to more functional corruption, at least corruption where services are provided, even if they're provided at expensive rates or whatnot. Are there ways to make systems at least work within this environment? So how can we start the process of accountability? What are the building blocks that can lay the foundation? Look, the first is having a court system that really works, that holds people to account, that enforces laws that everybody stands by. Certainly having a press system that is outside of the corridors of power, but can hold power accountable is an important way to publicize abuses. There are government institutions that can play a role, and certainly in Saudi Arabia, we've seen a huge effort by the government to root out corruption, the Integrity Commission, or Nizaha, and the concern then is, what institutions do you have to keep your integrity institutions honest? Because there's a huge incentive 
for people to abuse that if there aren't checks and balances. So it's a delicate process. I think there are lots of different pieces. Ultimately, my sense is that corruption takes root because of an imbalance in organizations holding each other accountable. And the way to address it is by creating a different balance of organizations that hold people accountable. There's not a single institution, a single activity. There's not a single bullet for this. I think ultimately rooting out corruption requires people keeping an eye on each other, individuals and organizations holding each other accountable. And through that checks and balances system, getting gradually to a much better place. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.